to a very special episode of Dano Says So. I say special because of the subject matter and the timing. Um, my guest today is a professor of history at Fairfield University with degrees from Brown and UCLA. He is Professor Ga Gabriel D. Rosenfeld. His specialty, area of specialty, if I could attempt a clumsy translation, is essentially the history of Nazism and of anti-Semitism. And for our purposes today, he's done a great deal discussing how it translates to present-day American situations. Would you say that, sir? Yes. Oh, well, Gabriel Rosenfeld, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Cool. Um, right off the bat, jumping right in. Um, in the 90s, I spent a great deal of time in Germany. Uh, toured concentration camps. Uh, the big topic then, when I first went over, was the wall had come down. Um, what caught me off guard is, as a young American, my biggest understanding of that country was World War II history. But it was not discussed in polite conversation when I was there. Right? Um, so it was very hard to understand how it could happen and how it had affected them. What I would ask you is, what made 1920s, 1930s Germany so right? for the taking. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the explanations have changed over time. But um, I would say the old explanation was that the German people just didn't have much experience with democracy. So for example, if you think about how the United States and Great Britain and modern France were all forged through political revolutions, where a king was overthrown, and power went to the people and they developed their skills and, you know, learning how to run uh, parliament and enact legislation and have, getting the right to vote and so forth. You know, ever since the 18th century and in England, the 17th century, the British, French, and Americans all had, you know, quite a bit of time to get used to democracy and internalizing it as part of their political culture. Whereas the Germans only unified in 1871 and the political movement that unified them was very conservative and pro-monarchy. Um, the long explanation, uh, to put it very simply, is that the Germans were very inexperienced with democracy. So that when they lost World War I and they got a new democracy in Weimar uh, from 1919 to 1933, mm -hmm. um, the fact that their first real exposure um, to democracy was against the backdrop of a world war that they had lost, a uh, political revolution, and the fear of socialism and communism, not to mention the hyperinflation of 1923 and the Great Depression of 29, you know, the basic argument was, you know, they were just, they were nostalgic for, you know, one man rule. Uh, and when the Kaiser really? uh, sort of embodied that idea of strong autocratic rule, even though there was a parliament in the 19th century, the fact of the matter is, is, you know, most Germans got habituated to that. Uh, and so they basically were very, very happy to give the benefit of the doubt to Hitler and the Nazis when they came on the scene. Um, needless to say, none of this would have happened had it not been for the calamitous 30% unemployment, um, the fact that the Great Depression ruined the German economy, the fact that they were, you know, humiliated from the uh, settlement of World War I and so on and so forth. Um, but here's the thing. I think, you know, that old argument, um, while it might have been true, um, given the fact that the Americans, French, and British have long been seen as stalwart Democrats, now the fact that in England with Brexit and Boris Johnson and certainly America under Donald Trump, um, we're not behaving so admirably necessarily in terms of respect for precedent and, and norms and democratic procedures, not to mention the fact that we seem to be, uh, or at least many people, at least 35, 40% are perfectly happy to uh, believe everything that uh, the commander in chief has said after 20,000 lies, uh, as the Washington Post recently reported. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, my, my personal opinion was once upon a time, you know, how could the Germans 
as a people so civilized and enlightened and technologically advanced and modern? How could they have fallen for this dupe, Adolf Hitler, and all this nonsense he was spouting? Well, now we're living in a world where, you know, QAnon and Facebook, um, you know, uh, fake news that Russian bots may be producing. I mean, people are uh, buying into all kinds of crazy conspiracies. And, you know, maybe we're not so different from the Germans at the end of the day. That, that, that begs a philosophical question, because my, my perception had always been about the rise of Nazism was that there was definitely an economic situation which led to it. Sure. Um, and, and I grasped that sort of the settlement of World War I was extremely humiliating to, to Germany. Hence, you know, them using the same boxcar later, yada, yada, yada. Um, my my uh, question to you would be then on the face of, much less so than I expected from our conversation, America doesn't strike me as a twin or it strike me as sitting identically vulnerable. But yeah, a lot of the same things do seem, seem to be in play. Why are those key differences not affecting things more? Because, and I, I, it's terrible hosting to babble, but to give you a little, just a little bit more framework, I had always considered the easiest way to lose a political argument or to sound like a truly self-destructive uh, purveyor of logic was to convey your opponents as being the next Hitler, or to compare people to Hitler, right? Sure. That's starting to feel obsolete, much to my horror. Right, right. So, I mean, you're referring here, of course, to the famous internet law, known as Godwin's Law, which says that, you know, the longer a debate goes on on the web, uh, the more likely it is one participant will invoke Hitler. And then the famous mm -hmm. corollary to that is, uh, to Godwin's Law's Dodd's corollary, which says that the first person to invoke Hitler automatically loses the debate. I'd never uh, heard of either of them, but it's nice to know I was in, I was in known company. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mike Godwin's a well-known blog who came up with that uh, okay. quote-unquote law, um, which is not to be confused with internet, internet law number one, which, uh, which you may be familiar with. If it exists, there will be pornographic versions of it. <laughs> but that's, that's, a side, that's a side issue. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's lazy man's analogizing to say that everything that you may not like is tantamount to Hitler. And the disadvantage of doing that is usually um, when whatever you're criticizing doesn't turn out to be Hitler, you're accused of crying wolf, and you then desensitize people to, f to future uh, warnings that you might want to put forth when there actually may be a real threat. Now, I would say that, um, as I've been writing about in a new article I'm working on, that there have been multiple phases in American history since, 19, since the 1930s where there were you know, mostly leftist or centrist um, liberal pundits who were warning that whatever they were concerned about in America was perhaps a new example of the country turning in a fascist direction. You know, to give you one obvious example, in the 1960s when, uh, you know, anti-civil uh, rights agitators in the South were um, mobilizing against civil rights when Nixon... Uh, you know, when the Watergate scandal broke, when the crimes in Vietnam were raging, you know, a lot of people who were part of the hippie generation were totally convinced, not to mention a lot of black nationalists, were convinced that America was on a path straight to Hitler, to fascism, to genocide, you name it. And, you know, you can see these fears ebbing and flowing over the course of the last 70 or so odd years, but Hitler has always been the go-to analogy. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's some, uh, you know, a good analogy will always stress differences as well as similarities. So, I wrote a piece a couple, last year, it was called An American Fuhrer, and the question is, you know, does Donald Trump, uh, as, you know, there's been a five-year debate about this, but should Donald Trump be seen as equivalent to Hitler, or share, should he be seen as sharing inequalities with Hitler one way or the other? And there's, you know, two very clear camps uh, with different agendas, and I tried to summarize the entire debate and um, kind of show where both sides have strengths and weaknesses, but at the end of the day, 
um, what it becomes pretty clear about is, or what becomes quite clear is that people who use analogies are always doing them, uh, doing so politically. They're always doing so subjectively. And they're always leaving certain things out to score political points. And so, you know, when we, when we hear people claim to make comparisons between yesterday and today, we have to be very, very, I mean, A, it's good if we're informed, but B, we have to be a little bit skeptical. Okay. Okay. It's the, it's the cheap route. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's shorthand. I mean, I think the same way, like if you, you know, one of the reasons you see protesters in the streets now uh, claiming that Trump is Hitler or when Obama was president, when the Tea Party types were, you know, uh, mobilizing in Washington, D.C. against Obamacare, and they were claiming that he was, you know, more or less like Hitler because he allegedly was creating death panels to murder mm -hmm. grandma and grandpa, just like the Nazis did. Um, you know, it's a shorthand way of galvanizing your supporters, mobilizing them, frightening them, being an alarmist, getting them into the streets. And, you know, it's a way of sort of short-circuiting a nuanced discussion. And because we're living in a social media age where no one has an attention span beyond 10 seconds, that's sort of the, the route rhetorically that most people go down. Okay. Um, let's, let's, let's immediately grasp to what I do see as one of the similarities and one of the points for drawing that equation. And you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong, at least from your informed perspective. And that is sort of fascist methodology or, fa or totalitarian methodologies when it comes to the press and when it comes to the reporting and traffic of information. That is perhaps more than anything else in this, you know, the fake news feud or however you want to put it and everything else is one of the ways that I more sit around fearing that my country is trending towards fascist practices or even Stalinist type moves. Right, um, right. I mean, I think Trump's true, true abuse of <laughs> the free, you know, the free marketplace of ideas um, mm -hmm. is, is horrendous. I mean, the fact of the matter is he's more, more than anything else, I don't think he's advancing necessarily a clear ideology through mm -hmm. his own, uh, you know, state-supported media, which is what fascist regimes do. I mean, the Nazis, let's just to be very clear, I mean, when the Nazis took power in January of 33, one of the first things they did was ban the free press. I mean, we haven't had that happen in the U.S. Uh, Trump still is working in a democratic framework. So what he, he, the, the only choice he has right now is to sort of discredit the existing press, which he's done a great job of. Um, but that begs the question of why would 40% of the population be so credulous as to believe that everything that they are being told in C by CNN or MSNBC, it's all fake. It's all lies. Right. And, until, and until the pandemic hit, I think um, it was probably quite easy for Trump to create a bubble for all of his supporters and to get them to think that whether it's through OAN or Breitbart or their own media outlets, that their version of the truth was the only truth that's worth uh, paying attention to. And maybe, I mean, I think the hope of a lot of liberals and centrists was that if people in red states start seeing their neighbors die left and right from a pandemic, maybe they'll pay attention to the fact that there is a reality out there and it's not simply how you spin it. Um, but then again, you see these protests and rallies and people are saying that, you know, it's all a hoax, it's all fake. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, it's very discouraging, which I guess, I mean, we can, I'm sure you want to, mention a couple of things, but the one thing I think we should cover right now is, you know, it's not so much what is Trump doing to manipulate the media, but why are 35, 40% of the population, why are they so willing to believe this stuff? Because Trump would get nowhere without that base of support. So, I mean, I have my own ideas as to why that's the case, but we can touch on that later, maybe. I was going to say, Gabrielle, we're here for your ideas, sir. Go, go right ahead. I mean, the question is, is why is, why are people essentially um, believing nonsense, believing uh, claims that are actually working against them, whether it's about their economic well-being, whether it's about the need for health care, whether it's the need, about, uh, the need for 
social distancing and during a time of the pandemic. There's all kinds of things that people are unwilling to believe simply because, as many pundits have claimed, you know, we've gone tribal. Um, it's us versus them. It's the Bloods versus the Crips. It's the mm -hmm. Dodgers versus the Yankees, whatever. And anything that my side says uh, has to be right because my own identity is so wrapped up with my side winning that I can't even see the truth uh, because everything has become so polarized and so partisan. And I think that is where America does very much resemble Weimar Germany in, in terms of the very um, severe social polarization between left and right. Um, in Germany back then, it was between the socialists and the communists on the left and between the Nazis and people who were just a little bit more liberal than the Nazis on the far right. And the, and the vital center, the middle class, the, more, you know, the old traditional liberal wing of the spectrum, it just became abandoned. Everyone was at one extreme, and that was a recipe for, for a horrific outcome in Germany. That's what I'm personally afraid of in this country. It's funny, a little inside baseball, the people that are watching when you and I were talking and are getting to know each other for a second before hitting record, you told me I had sent you enough subject matter for three hours. And now, oh, yeah. and, now well, and now the follow-ups, I'm still on the follow-ups to the second question, so I'm seeing where you're coming from. Because what I heard in there and what drives me crazy, especially within the frame of the internet, is that to my eye, the demographic that most fervently supports Trump does so contrary to their own best interests. Sure. Largely, but does so, but, and this goes to why I, I felt that Trump was elected and why Trump ever had a shot, which is, but it scratches an itch. It, in, it indulges their hates or their fears or yeah. their personal insecurities. Is that a fair translation? Yeah, and I think much of that insecurity uh, is born of 40 years of stagnating wages and deindustrialization and parts of America that used to be, you know, full of jobs becoming hollowed out for all kinds of global, you know, reasons having to do with capitalism, mm -hmm. uh, which is a whole separate economic question. But, you know, I think the people, the party that's responsible for not helping the people who really desperately need help, for example, by who, who would benefit from universal health care or from a more, you know, uh, solid social welfare safety net, the people who would benefit from, you know, those policies are the ones who've been screwed over uh, by Republican policies for the last 40 years, which is to, you know, dismantle government, uh, have everyone, you know, just be a free operator in a mm -hmm. gig economy. And um, what the, the most genius thing the Republicans did was cause the economic misery that's now leading to the support for Trump, but mm -hmm. invading responsibility for having caused that misery in the first place. And of course, shunting it aside onto immigrants or Muslims or Latinos coming from south of the border, or, and perhaps this is the most um, relevant to what you said about scratching an itch, the whole idea that the people on the coasts, the elites, in the media, in the tech sector, at universities, you know, liberal journalists and so forth, those are the people who really don't have, you know, the American people's interests at heart, and they're interest, interested mostly in just jetting off to, you know, the Grand Cayman Islands to put their you know, illicitly gotten gains through this, from the stock market into offshore accounts. And, you know, we're, we're, they're flying over flyover country and they're scorning the masses. And so Trump mm -hmm. basically illustrates that hostility towards the elites, especially the educated elites. And, you know, it's no, it's no surprise that the people who vote for, for Trump and the GOP today are, are people without college degrees. If, you're, if you go to college, if you're the beneficiary of a college education, you've been taught how to think in terms of critical thinking, not believing everything you read, and not, honestly, I, I've been saying this a lot lately, but there was a famous historian named Louis Namier uh, in England who came up with a very clever uh, explanation of why the study of history is so important. And he said, it's not so much that history tells you how things happen. 
it's that history teaches you how things don't happen, by which he meant that conspiracy theories that allege that, you know, there are these Satan-worshipping, child-molesting, you know, sex-trafficking liberals who run pizza parlors in D.C., and they're all hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein, and they're the ones who are fueling the Democratic Party. That's not how things actually work. Most, most historical events are the byproduct of clumsy decisions and spontaneous gestures and things not being settled in a back smoky in a back room with cigars and, and fat cats. But if you have no exposure to how the world works, and if you haven't been taking history classes or poli sci classes or anthropology, I mean, I don't want to, you know, overemphasize how important a human, human humanities education is today, but you know, we're we're sorely lacking and we're grossly underinformed. And that's why you have millions of people still believing the Confederacy was all, you know, the Confederacy in the Civil War was all about heritage and not slavery. So it's hard as an educator for myself to to try and combat why there are 10 millions of, you know, tens of millions of people voting for Trump when, you know, it's a byproduct of our, you know, poor education system. And by the way, I don't think it's a surprise that Republican uh, state legislatures have been disinvesting in public education for the last decades. And if you have an undereducated uh, electorate, you can, you, know, you can sway them much more readily. Really quick insert. Uh, and I realize it's below, it's below the, your, your collegiate level, but this proposed 1776 executive order, this has no teeth, right? Look, I mean, he, he can do an executive order up the, he can do as many executive up orders up the yin-yang as he wants, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, it, look, it depends. If you're at a public university, if you're at the University of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and there are some administrators who are being told by the trustees at the university who are appointed by the governor who are all, you know, rabid conservatives that, you know, you've got to be on the lookout for professors who are teaching you know, texts that might be critical of America. I mean, you're, you may be under some pressure. If you're at a private university, I mean, I happen to teach at a Catholic Jesuit university, uh, which has no obligation to, to listen to federal mandates on this kind of thing. Um, but there could be people, especially in red states, who may feel um, silenced and censored, just like, you know, try and get an abortion today in any number of red states. Um, you know, if you're a young woman and, and that's something that you feel is needed. You know, a lot of people have been, have been completely shut out of all kinds of things that should be constitutionally available for them because at the local level, it's simply prohibited. Okay. I want to pivot from a question that started off asking you about uh, sort of methodology with the press to entertainment into something that I find curious. Now I read Fatherland back in the early nineties. I don't remember how it landed with me. Um, It was fascinating to me partially just because I'd always had a a sort of a fetishist fixation on World War II just in general. But, you know, it was powerful to read, you know, a fiction, a fiction where the Nazis had won. In mainstream televised entertainment, alternate history has had a big year or two. Oh, my Um, gosh, yes, absolutely. Why do you think that is? I mean, Amazon is all in, HBO is all in. To my eye, they're they're quality products. I particularly like The War Against America. Sure. And if it does what you do, I would really like to hear your take on it. Sure. I mean, especially, I don't know if you ever saw the HBO... um, video version of fatherland which came out like in 1995 i think with i was living in the i was living in the east bay didn't have cable had busted a pair of rabbit ears fanzines for that stretch of years let's put it this way it was a pretty low budget affair even though it starred rutger howard miranda richardson okay uh, it was pretty low tech and you know it was not not anything close to the best-selling novel that harris had written Mm -hmm. a couple years earlier Uh, and that was a kind of one-off for the for that matter um it's really, you're right, it's only been in the last four or five years that you see this absolute proliferation of alternate history 
shows. I mean, it goes beyond the Nazis, um, but I'm just finishing an article right now that um, sort of compares the four major shows just in the last two years uh, that have come out on the subject. So you've got The Man in the High Castle, of course, which just wrapped up its fourth and final season. You've got The Plot Against America on HBO uh, about Charles Lindbergh getting elected president in 1940 and turning America in a far right-wing direction. You've got Hunters with Al Pacino, which was That's on right. I, and I watched, I watched it all the way through, so I'm surprised I didn't remember to mention it. Yeah, and so, you know, the, the premise there is that it's the 1970s, it's gritty New York City, and there are Nazis who have been smuggled into the country as rocket scientists and other officials, and they're trying to create a Fourth Reich and using, you know, germ technology to murder ethnic minorities and so forth, and that's just gotten renewed for its second season. It's going to start next year. And then, of course, you've got uh, Watchmen, which just won 11 Emmys mm -hmm. and um, is very much based on the 80s comic book, which was also, you know, about fascism in the form of Ronald Reagan that was, and Margaret Thatcher. That was the, the metaphor, at least, the mm -hmm. allegory. Um, and that, you know, is, has been very much updated to deal with issues of race uh, and the white supremacist threat that America is facing. So all of this has come up really just in the last couple of years. And, I mean, the obvious explanation is twofold. One is that the, the Trump administration as a backdrop is allowing all kinds of counterfactual nightmares to, you know, loom larger in our minds and in our, you know, and in our, in our um, you know, concerns with sure. where they reflect anxieties. But then, of course, there's also the fact that, you know, what's been called the second golden age of television with all these streaming platforms, Netflix, uh, HBO, Hulu, and so forth, it's, it's created all kinds of um, demand for content. Uh, and the fact that you now have this, um, until COVID prevented filming from going forward, you had this um, insatiable demand for new kinds of topics, uh, meant that alternate history was allowed to leave the margins of pop culture more into the mainstream. Um, and, you know, Stephen King's 112263 on Hulu was you know, starring James Franco, focusing mm -hmm. on the Kennedy, Kennedy not being assassinated. There was a, a Polish series called 1983, which aired on Netflix. There's a new thing called Knots and Crosses on Peacock, which... I, focuses, saw, I saw the, public, the, the, the promo for that this morning. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, do we, have, do we all have enough time in the day to watch so many streaming series? It's, it's hard. I mean, not to mention great series like... Uh, Lovecraft Country, if you're interested in issues of race. I mean, I even saw a review of the movie Antebellum the other day, which made me think, I mean, it contained all the spoilers, so now I'm not sure. But, but you know, there's a lot of really high-level high um, cinematic and television portrayal of these kinds of issues. And my hope, of course, is that it's seen as um, an admonitory set of, you know, it offers a set of admonitory lessons to people. You know, if you don't protect democracy, if you, if in fact you do just take it for granted and allow, you know, and lead leave it to other people to solve the problems, then at a certain point you'll lose what you have. Um, and, you know, that evokes the famous comment from the 18th century, I think from Ben Franklin, like, you know, we're, we're trying to create a republic, but, you know, we might be in danger of losing it if we don't actively cultivate it. You know, I mean, we, we can't just subcontract out all these uh, important tasks to people who are either corrupt or incompetent. Uh, all of us have to kind of do our part, which is, you know, why I'm telling my students you know, regardless of how they're going to vote, register to vote, damn it, you know, do something because you haven't lived, uh, you know, in a time that's this pivotal, um, yeah. really for 20 years, probably. So we'll see, we'll see what the turnout's like, and we'll see uh, what the up upshot is in early November. Well, and, and an early takeaway I got from this conversation you and I are having right now, we, you know, we were talking about how it's sort of a cheap pop uh, and a way to lose an argument, the immediate, you know, equivocation of what's going on with, in any situation, with it. Um, but 
I'm a, I'm a 52 year old man. I think I heard somewhere. Are you high school class of 85? Yeah. So I'm, I just turned 53. Well, so you and I, you and I are the same high school class, which we have, we have probably a lot of the same cultural touchstones. Oh, completely. The yeah. day after, you know, remember back in, what was it? 84. Yeah. When Lawrence Jason Kansas Robards, all you got to do is tuck down behind the, tuck down behind the dashboard of a Volvo and you're good. And you're good. <laughs> yeah. um, but what I was going to say, so in my limited life lifestyle or lifetime, and maybe having any level of political awareness, maybe starting around 1980, I find the evolution of tribalism in America, the polarization of the left and right, and the persona of Donald Trump and his very specific machinations to be the most frightening situation I've witnessed. You know, there have been some other situations, some wars, things like that. With that, with that framing. Can you give me a best case scenario and a worst case scenario in your opinion regarding the upcoming election? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the problem is the worst case scenario. We're we're so used to thinking in apocalyptic apocalyptic terms these days, because we're obviously not just dealing with a crisis of democracy and a man who apparently has made over a billion and a half dollars on the presidency in the last three and a half years. Oh, I hadn't heard that. And has looked the other way. I mean, it was asked us to look all look the other way while all his you know, former associates get arrested and the impeachment. I mean, it's, it's truly mind-boggling how many scandals have come out of this administration. And if that were the only thing going on, we'd be in a bad enough situation, not to mention 200,000 dead, not to mention California on fire, not to mention Florida sinking into the Atlantic. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So look, I mean, we have, I think, an opportunity. The best case scenario is we have an opportunity to reinvigorate American democracy by proving that the 35 to 40% of the country that doesn't want to listen to science or doesn't want to listen to reason or wants to listen to a corrupt entertainer tell them that everything's going to be fine, that they're in the minority and that the people who uh, either have expertise or care about the country and don't just care about their own bottom line, that they are the ones who can command, um, you know, and can lead uh, other people to create solutions to problems we've long neglected, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's our educational system, whether it's you know, the need to stop having construction projects and floodplains. You know, there's a lot of reform that needs to be done. And, and the, you know, the best case scenario is that we end up moving into an era like the progressive era in the 1890s, 1900s, early 19-teens, where in response to terrible problems, social and economic inequality and so forth, American elites and people with know-how were able to forge a whole reform agenda um, to save, you know, the good things about the country and to make the things that were bad better. Um, the same happened in New Deal America under FDR. But as you may know from your own exposure to counterfactual history, Roosevelt was almost assassinated in 1933 in Miami when he was shot. I mean, he was at a, at a rally where the mayor of Chicago right next to him was shot and killed. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you imagine Roosevelt not presiding over America during the New Deal and <laughs> somebody else like John Nance Garner or, you know, whoever, um, who was, you know, let alone Huey Long or some demagogue, I mean, mm-hmm how we recovered in the 1930s was largely due to Roosevelt's important leadership. And absent that, we could have had our same kind of crisis we're dealing with now 70 years, 80 years earlier. So, you know, the role of individuals in history is super important. And while people may not be thrilled by Joe Biden, and maybe he's, you know, uh, a little past his expiration date in some respects, um, the fact of the matter is, is he is somebody who is authentic and honest and trustworthy um, and, you know, is, is so vastly ahead of Trump in terms of competence in his own person, not to mention the people he would bring into office with him, that I think if we really want to not just give up uh, and kind of become a, 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 you know, a North American version of Ukraine, um, we, we got to vote and we got to turn out and we have to, you know, uh, do what Americans have done in previous generations. 
Uh, if we don't do that, uh, then we'll have four more years of the same thing. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty damn exhausted. I'm exhausted. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit frightened. Um, and here would be, here would be where, where the fear comes from. I mean, I'm, I'm a middle-class dude with a survivable median income. I do okay. But life has gotten harder just in the last six months. And, yeah, that's largely COVID. But, I mean, the decisions regarding the government, regarding pandemic, regarding quarantine, regarding containment, everything, seem to have been based entirely on women personality and on political strategizing. Yeah, it's not about policy at all. Yeah, and a government in that fashion for the last four years has gone almost unchecked. And you get a second four years on, you know, any fear of behaving with just what I used to consider obscene audacity is out the window. I would imagine yep. that Trump is the type of personality who would then feel comfortable trying to completely remove standard pillars of the republic. Yeah. You know, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a real fear. And I think, I mean, the crazy thing is, uh, you know, I think the reason that Donald Trump is not a fascist, even though he has fascist tendencies, and that's, you know, un indisputable, I think, is that um, he really doesn't have any worldview. He doesn't have any ideology except his bottom line and being popular in the ratings. I mean, I think in that sense, him being a celebrity star, you know, separately a reality TV celebrity is something that really does get to the core of his being. So he need, I mean, he can't ignore pop public opinion. He can't ignore um, the, you know, the sense um, that whatever he might do might be popular or unpopular. I mean, look, he just gave $13 billion to Puerto Rico years after they went through Hurricane Maria when they could have used it. But his hope is now he's going to shore up the Latino vote and he's going to give money uh, to people in the effort to try and woo them in the, for the coming election. I mean, Hitler, let's just be clear, Mussolini, they weren't giving billions of dollars to their political enemies. Um, for the sake of being popular. I mean, that's not what real fascist dictators do. Sure, they want to be popular in their own way, but it's usually through fear and compulsion and coercion. Um, and so, you know, were he to get a second term, that would be tremendously frightening, uh, especially because he may want to go for a third term, as he already said, because who cares yeah, about- Yeah, rather open. But uh, ironically enough, he would want to continue to be popular during all these things. So, you know, look, I mean, at a certain point, Americans love raising up their heroes and their celebrities onto pedestals and then knocking them down. There may be some element, you know, where you know, there might be some moment where Americans get tired of his act and they want to just move on to the next new thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe his tenure would be, you know, finite in duration. But I certainly don't want to risk that. And I think you're right that, you know, the, the gloves come off when he's a lame duck president. And we shall see. Um, your most recent book, correct me if I'm wrong, The Fourth Reich, Spectre of Nazism from World War II to the Present. Right? Yes. Um, it was much to my surprise. I, I'm, I'm coming away with a much more nuanced take from this interview. I expected you to very be, be able to very clearly uh, portray to me that, yes, this man represents the coming of a fourth Reich or of an American Reich. Now I'm feeling, particularly in that last bit of conversation, uh, this man is almost too at the mercy of his own neediness and his own narcissism to pull something like that off. Yeah, I think A, he's too lazy. I think B, he's too concerned with the bottom line financially. I think he wants to enrich himself and enrich his family. You know, I've read so many articles trying to come up with the perfect historical precedent for him. He's been compared to everyone from Henry VIII to Louis XIV to Mussolini to Girolamo Savonarola in Renaissance Florence. I mean, the, the comparisons are endless. But to me, the most um, convincing one is sort of like a mafia don who simply wants to use whatever is at his disposal at that moment 
uh, to protect his business empire, uh, to enrich himself, to completely flout the emoluments clause and to do all kinds of things that would allow him to you know, profit off the presidency. And he's not doing it for any larger political ideology or worldview. He's very opportunistic. And he'll take whatever, you know, seems to be a winning argument for that particular moment. But there's no fixed principles. There's no, you know, virulent ideology. That's very, very different from Mussolini or Hitler or, or Stalin or Chairman Mao, to be sure. So in that respect, I don't think he's uh, a fascist. That, that's by no means to, to, to underestimate the danger and the threat, because we're still giving the ship of state, you know, the world's largest economy and 330 million people to person who is ill-suited, unqualified, and not really interested in doing what it takes to, you know, run this country. And we're seeing, of course, with the COVID response, you know, where that becomes a liability. He had really escaped that, that exposure up until the last, you know, since up, up until March. Mm -hmm. And now it's, you know, not to mention the fact that if he appoints someone to the Supreme Court who's going to strip Obamacare uh, and 20 million Americans will lose their health insurance, I can't imagine that most people, when they finally vote, are just going to say, oh, you know, I don't know if I can curse on this podcast, but, you know, what the F, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to wing it. I'm going it. to tell you, sir, that you have an absolute fucking green light. Oh, good. So, I mean, you know, the people who be like, just what the fuck, I don't give a shit about what my vote, I just want to be entertained, which was sort of the mindset of a lot of people in 2016. Okay. Now it's kind of clear that their jobs depend on who's in charge and their health depends on who's in charge. And, you know, like everyone's hurting in different ways. So I would like to think we're going to vote rationally, but others... You know, I have I have friends nearby where I live who are who drunk the Kool Aid and are part of the cult, and they just think everything that the opposition's saying is unfair and nonsense and fake. And some people are not going to be, uh, you know, if they're insulated from reality, they can afford to do that. But I, I'd like to think enough people they're in the minority, and more people will be on the other side. My feeling is that the truth of majority rule and that you know your vote total is still just incredibly vulnerable the layout of the Electoral College. I mean, you know, 2016, election night, I just sat in stunned disbelief. Sure. It was almost, that it was much more important where your vote was than how many your vote was. Yeah. No, I mean, it's the, we're, we're seeing what's been called minority rule in other countries, where a small percentage of the population uh, embracing values that may have been current in the 1950s, but are long since obsolete, you know, they are through the, screwy features of our constitutional system able to triumph over the will of the majority. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the Senate as an institution. That's the Electoral College as an institution. And my hope is that, you know, if we can take the, the Senate back and get the presidency, that what the Democrats will do is start is stop playing nice and fair with the Republicans because they've expected them to reciprocate all these years when there was never any intention. Because, you know, in, in history, when there's elites that are downwardly mobile and threatened with decline, they're going to be desperate. They'll use every damn, you know, trick in the book to hold on to power. We have mm -hmm. to start unfortunately behaving the same way. So we'll get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. Mm -hmm. So you pass legislation with 51 votes. Uh, we'll pack the Supreme Court with four new justices. We'll totally, uh, well, I've been, you know, hearing a lot of stories now about allowing Puerto Rico and, and Washington DC into the state and to the country as two mm -hmm. new states. That'll give Democrats four new senators. I mean, if they want to play hardball, we're going to have to play hardball in response because at the end of the day, the future of the planet uh, depends on this. The future of, you know, our healthcare system depends on this. And it'll require everyone making some sacrifices. Look, I mean, everyone's going to have to pay more in taxes, but either we just have it be, uh, you know, everyone's in it for themselves, free for all, or we're going to have to remember that we are actually a country where we're supposed to look out for each other. Uh, and that means having some responsible leadership.
and there is modern precedent for it. You know, you, I, you say a few things there that I think people might eye roll or say would never happen, but correct me if I'm wrong, the majority of the New Deal, the legality of it was debated. And, sure. and Roosevelt, FDR, tried to increase the number of justices to support his needs, did he not? Oh, sure. And there's nothing in the Constitution that's not limited. I mean, I was just reading an article about John Adams, you know, debating Jefferson about the size of the Supreme Court. You know, one side reduced, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that Adams tried to, or succeeded temporarily in reducing the number of justices from six to five, and then Jefferson reversed it. But, you know, ever since the beginning of this country's founding, both sides, whether it's Democratic Republicans versus Federalists or Democrats against Republicans, we're always jousting and trying to, you know, man, you know, maneuver the system or rig the system for our own advantage. Uh, but I do think that it's certainly true that there is one party today in America that stands for the needs, not just of a small minority, but that is trying to, you know, adapt to the changing nature of this country in terms of it becoming less white, more brown, more diverse, um, and, you know, more immigrant. And if we're going to adapt to that new reality, we need to have a party that is in charge that actually tries to accept reality and not simply hold it, you know, hold it at bay, like, you know, sticking your, your thumb in the dike in the proverbial Netherlands. Agreed. Um, two things. Uh, first, uh, we didn't take three hours, and we did a good job with the outline I had sent you, and I am thrilled. Well, I am thrilled with this material. You did not ask me to do this, but I asked you if I could do this. Um, one last thing I'd like to cover before, uh, you know, I start to eyeball the exit. You are working. You are working on a funny book right now, and it is, it is, uh, if I understand it, more by committee or more of a group effort. Can you tell us about that? Right. So for the last couple of years, I'm a member of the German Studies Association, which you know is a, gr a group of uh, scholars in the United States, Canada, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and elsewhere, uh, who focus on issues of German history, German culture, and so forth. And uh, as part of that, um, you know, many thousand person organization. Uh, we've created a sort of a working group of people who study the ways in which the, the, the subject of German fascism, German Nazism is relevant for present day America. Uh, we've had a lot of conference panels about this. And one of the things that's come out of it is a new book project that's going to be called Fascism in America, Past and Present, which I'm co-editing. And there'll be about a dozen articles by, you know, leading experts in the history of, say, fascist movements in America in the 1930s or 1940s, or how uh, in recent years, fears of a new uh, resurgent fascism have led to all kinds of uh, debates in this country, whether it's, you know, the white genocide uh, movement, which claims that whites are threatened by uh, people of color coming into the country, or whether it's the article that I'm writing about, you know, focusing on the, the new alternate history series that have been exploring the fears about fascism, or the recent concentration camp debate, for example, on the border where, you know, kids in cages, is that tantamount to concentration camps or not? So, you know, there's a lot of issues that um, will sort of all be coming back to the same question, which is, is there a fascist tradition in America? And should what we're dealing with now be seen in those terms? Or are there better ways of understanding America's right wing shift in the last couple of years? I wait with bated breath, sir. That sounds like a hell of a read. Yeah. Um, listen, I was very, very excited to do this. Um, it has absolutely lived up to my hopes. I want to thank you for sitting down with me today. I suspect, well, I suspect that the next four months are going to be a hell of a ride. Um, if your schedule is permitting, could I ask you to come back? Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about politics, history, anything, anytime. All right. Well, Gabriel Rosenfeld, thank you so much, sir. All right, Dan. Take it easy. 
Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.